beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's the summertime and perhaps we're thinking of where we plan to go for vacation or we're thinking of where we have already gone for vacation. If you had planned to go somewhere, be it camping or traveling abroad, wherever it might be, you could scout out the destination on your computer, couldn't you? Or on your phone if you really wanted to. You just type in the name of the place and up comes all sorts of information. What you can do there, what it looks like, where it is, all sorts of information. You can see the picture, perhaps even videos and a map of it, and all of it would say, this is your destination. This is your destination. It's a perfectly normal way to talk. But of course, strictly speaking, that is not your destination. Your destination is not the phone. It's not the computer. It's a representation of where you're going. It gives a great impression of what can be done there, but it is only a representation. No matter how much we might wish it to be so, the pictures on our screens cannot become the place where we want to go. Cannot do it. Much the same could be said of the elements of the Lord's Supper, the broken bread and the poured out wine, each distributed to the communicant members of the congregation. They signify the body, the crucified body, and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is at issue in this Lord's Day is the real presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. What we believe about this how Christ is present or whether he is present there, what we believe about this, it impacts our view and practice of communion. So I bring you the God's word under the following theme, the bread and wine teach us to lift up our hearts to Christ in heaven. And we'll see three things there, the reality of Christ's presence. We'll see also the reminder of Christ's work. And we'll see finally the assurance of sharing in Christ. So we begin with the reality of Christ's presence. This Lord's Day is sandwiched between the catechism's other two Lord's Days on the Lord's Supper. Its sacrament is very important to the Christian faith. So much doctrine goes into what we are doing at the Lord's Supper. That's why we spend three Lord's Days talking about it. The first is about how the Lord's Supper actually works. Focusing our faith on the Word of God, on the promises that are made there what it means to eat and drink Christ's crucified body and shed blood by faith, and then finally the scriptural institution of the sacrament. The Lord's Day for this afternoon is more focused on the elements. It's more focused on the bread and the wine. What are they doing? What is their nature and purpose? What comfort does God grant to me by instituting this sacrament with its visible signs of bread and wine? Well, we should begin first by establishing precisely what those elements are. I've mentioned they're bread and wine, but there's more to it than that. They are the broken bread, and it is the wine poured out, each distributed to the communicant members of the congregation, as I've already said once. But that's, it's important for us to recognize that. It's not just bread and wine, but it is broken bread, poured out wine, distributed to believing members. These are the signs that point to the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord when he offered himself for our sins on the cross. Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that profound and meaningful event, that event that, that changed everything. And we are called to reflect both on the weight of our sins and on the joy of being saved from God's wrath on account of our sins. 
Now, here's a question that's been asked through the ages. There are some visitors who visit churches who, who have no background in Christianity or perhaps young people who are, who are just starting to learn, just starting to figure out what Christianity is all about. Here's a question that gets asked regularly. Do the bread and the wine really change into the real body and blood of Jesus Christ? Do they change? Is there some miracle by which the physical body and blood of Christ comes with the bread and the wine or by which the bread and the wine are somehow transformed into the body and blood of Christ, even though what we see is bread and what we see is wine? That question was posed during the time of the Reformers in the 1500s. That's why we have it here in the Book of Praise in the Heidelberg Catechism. It was posed also in the time of the very early church who were accused of cannibalism when they used language like Christ uses in John 6 to, to, to eat the flesh and the blood of Christ. They used the same language and they were accused of ca cannibalism by those who did not understand. So also Jesus had to explain himself when he used this language, when he called himself the bread of life. In Capernaum, John 6 verse 52 and 53 the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's an age-old question. It's been asked many times. Do we mean that Christ is physically present either in or with the elements themselves? The catechism is pointed and forceful in its answer. No. No, it is not. It is not necessary to consume Jesus' body and blood by the mouth. But it is rightly said of the bread and wine, this is my body, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We, together with the confession of our church, want to give those words their full weight. When Christ said them, he meant what he said. We all believe that. Christ teaches us that in the sacrament, he is there. And he is present in the sacrament. His true body and true blood are communicated to us there. Our souls are, are nourished and refreshed, refreshed unto eternal life there at the sacrament. Christ is really present at his supper. Now, the real presence of Christ was never in dispute between the Reformers and the Catholic Church, but it was a point of dispute between someone named Ulrich Zwingli and the other Reformers, such as Guido de Bray, Luther, Calvin, and others. Zwingli... And those who followed him considered that the Lord's Supper is only a memorial meal. It is only for remembering the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He thought it was only symbolic of what Christ does through the Spirit at other times in our lives. That's what Zwingli thought. It is only a remembrance of Christ's work on the cross. That's a trap we can fall into ourselves if we forget what Lord's Day 25 says about the sacraments, that the Holy Spirit uses these sacraments to strengthen our faith. The Holy Spirit is using what is happening there to strengthen, to build, and encourage us in our faith. So the sacraments, both baptism and Lord's Supper, they're intended to focus on what God is doing to us. But it's all too easy then to think of them as what we are doing in obedience to God. Or many think baptism is about us responding to God in faith. That's why some churches do adult baptism. They think it's about us responding to God in faith. But really, baptism is about the promises God makes on the covenant children. Similarly with Lord's Supper. At the Lord's Supper, God, the Holy Spirit, is, is really communicating Christ's true body and blood to us, uniting us with Him. 
The supper is a real participation in Christ's body and blood. As 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16 says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Not just in memory, or not just in expectation, but also in reality, at the supper we are partaking of Christ's true body and blood. For this reason, in keeping with the nature and the usage of the sacraments, as our catechism says, it is rightly said of the bread and the wine, this is my body, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The sacraments are external, visible signs and seals of an internal, spiritual reality. Just as baptism water does not become the blood of Christ itself, although it promises washing in the blood of Christ, but it only symbolizes the blood, so also the Lord's Supper, bread and wine, remain bread and wine. This type of language is used by Christ because the elements are so closely associated with what they are signifying to us. And baptism, the water, symbolizes the blood of Christ, in which God promises to cleanse those who are baptized from their sins and free them from death. It's Romans 6, verse 3 and 5 say, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Likewise, in the supper, the bread and the wine symbolized Christ's death and resurrection which God, with which God promises to nourish our souls unto life eternal. This close association, the relationship between the sign and the reality that they point to, teaches us not to think of the Lord's Supper only in terms of a memorial meal. Though that, remember, it's a, it's a crucial part of the sacrament, very important part of the sacrament, as Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. That is not all it is. More is happening than our remembering. There is more to the sacrament than a reminder of God's promise to feed our faith by his word, although that certainly is a true and sure and real promise. Something happens in the sacrament. As we confess in Belgian Confession, Article 33, our gracious God has ordained sacraments to seal his promises to us and be pledges of his goodwill and grace towards us. He did so to nourish and sustain our faith. Therefore... The signs are not void and meaningless so that they deceive us. The union with Christ, the nourishing of our souls, happens also at the sacrament itself because Christ is really present there. And what he has promised to communicate to us is really there. Now, all that being said, we ought not to think that the sacrament works by the action of partaking itself. See, the mechanical aspect of, of receiving the bread and the wine from the minister or from the elder, if they pass it around into the pews, and then placing it in our mouth and eating and drinking it, it that in itself does not nourish us spiritually. It cannot be so. Bread is bread and wine is wine. And all the mechanics of eating and drinking can do for us is to give us a morsel to eat and a sip to drink Apart from faith, that is all the benefit you can receive. Just like in baptism, faith is needed. Faith is needed to accept and obtain that which is promised in the sacrament, namely union with Christ. Without faith, 
Christ is not communicated to us. See, everyone born in this congregation is baptized, but it makes us very sad to say not everybody born into the Christian church obtains the promise of baptism. Not everyone perseveres in the faith. Not everyone actually accepts that washing by the blood of Jesus Christ. Faith is needed to accept the promise. It's not automatic. And even though everyone present at the Lord's Supper, they receive the elements, at least the communicant members do, the signs, not everyone automatically receives what they signify. Participation in the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord and Savior. It's a warning to be taken with complete seriousness. And that that those who receive the sacrament apart from faith do so to their own condemnation. But for all those who participate by faith, hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they do receive what is promised, certainly and surely, for God's promises are firm and sure, and He will not fail to grant to us what He has promised. doesn't necessarily mean that we understand exactly how that occurs. Lord's Day 29 doesn't elaborate on how exactly Christ's true body and blood are communicated to us spiritually. All we can say based on the testimony of Scripture is that it must be the Holy Spirit who does this. John 6 verse 63 says that it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. All that can be said about this can be found in question and answer 76, that the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ and governs us. In John 6, verse 35, Jesus insists that faith finds its, its nourishment, its food and drink in him. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But our confessions, including Belgian Confession, Article 35, they indicate it's, it's a mystery how this actually happens. It's not fully explained. It's beyond our ability to understand. It's important because we have to remember always that Christ, in his human nature, ascended into heaven and he is enthroned there. That's where he is. And that's where he wants to be worshipped. God's word says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's Colossians 3 verse 1. Desiring Christ to be physically present with us in the sacrament for his, for his physical body, for him to be here with us in his human nature, is refusing to lift up our hearts to him. Instead, insisting and demanding that Christ comes down to us. See, Christ is in heaven and he will remain there until his return, until the right time. And yet his true body and blood are given to us in the sacrament. There for us to receive by faith along with God's promise. That much we know from God's word, that the bread we break and the cup we bless are a participation in the crucified body and poured out blood of Jesus Christ. It is enough for us to depend on what God has revealed, that by faith the Spirit works this union with Christ in the sacrament. Well, we've spent the bulk of our time this afternoon on the presence of Christ at the supper. It's because once we establish that, the remainder of this Lord's Day, it falls naturally into place. The memorial part of the supper and the assurance, they, they take their proper forms and their proper place when we understand how Christ is present at the sacrament. And so we come to our second point then, the remainder or the reminder of Christ's work. 
Here we'll speak about the memorial aspect of the Lord's Supper. Because we said in the first point that the Lord's Supper is not only memorial. We emphasize that so that we don't take a one-sided or warped view of the sacrament. But now it's time to consider the memorial part of this Lord's Day or the Lord's Supper. We, we really cannot downplay that important truth. Just as the Christian faith is a memorial or a, a historical faith based on events that really happened, the Lord's Supper is also a memorial, a reminder to us of things that have happened in history. As the Catechism says, the purpose of the sacraments is to declare to us more fully the promise of the gospel. That means that the bread and the wine are intended to make us reflect on something that actually happened, namely the crucifixion of Jesus Christ at Golgotha and his subsequent resurrection. So when the Catechism explains to us why this sacramental language is used, this is my body, this cup is my blood, partaking of these is a participation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the Catechism begins with an explanation concerning Christ's crucifixion. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of what or who our spiritual food is. Well, this image is very useful to us as we know very well how food works, right? In a certain respect, you are what you eat. We know that. What you ingest becomes part of your body, and once that happens, no one can remove it again. It's a part of you. It can't be taken away. Spiritual matters work like that as well. Our spiritual health is determined by what we are being spiritually nourished by. Faith is the mouth of the soul, you could say. We are nourished, for better or for worse, by what we choose to hope and trust in, and by what brings us joy in this life. This determines our spiritual vitality. Now, we can choose to be nourished by the things that belong to this world. We can choose to be nourished by pagan religions, whatever form they may take. Certain ideologies that tell us that we can determine the truth for ourselves, and we can do that. We can choose to be nourished by worldly wisdom, whatever self-help this world may offer. Any one of these could become our confidence or the object of our hope. We might even choose to be nourished by the things that entertain us, like movies, music, books, and so on. But, but all of these things, they perish. They belong to this world. They will perish. None of that is living food. None of it is true food. They will pass away, and along with them, everyone who finds their spiritual nourishment in such things will also pass away. But we are taught by Scripture to instead lift up our hearts to heaven, to seek the things that are there, to come to Christ and to believe in Him, and so find in Him all that we need to live and to flourish forever. Christ alone is our nourishment unto eternal life. He lives eternally, and it is the imperishable Word of God that teaches us about Him. Those who cling to Christ, those who believe that His death paid for all our sins, will live forever along with Him. So when we come to the Lord's Supper table, let's not cling to the outward symbols of bread and wine, nor cling to the mechanics of eating and drinking placing things in our mouth and swallowing them. Instead, by faith, let us go back to what God's Word says, that Jesus Christ was crucified. And together with Him, all our sins were crucified on the cross, so that just as He was raised from the dead, so too might we be freed from death 
to live together with Him in glory. That's what we are taught by the elements of the sacrament, to focus on that central promise of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, we can read, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. When we come to the Lord's table in faith, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim that it really happened and that it has meaning for us. But not just His death, also the reason for His death. That we fell into sin along with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That we are corrupt and sinful by nature and no longer even desire to serve God. We proclaim that God's judgment comes on sinners such as us, a judgment which results in the ultimate price, temporal and eternal death. We declare also at the Lord's Supper that God the Son was sent to take on human nature, which He did so by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ died in that nature for our sins taking upon himself the full wrath of God against sin so that God's justice would be satisfied and that he might be reconciled to us. Finally, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, that he was in the grave for three days, after which God raised him from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and that he will return again at the end of the world in order to bring us to himself. You see that all the core promises and all the core teachings of the gospel are brought into the sacrament. It focuses our faith on what Christ has accomplished on the cross and what God has promised because of what Christ has done. So every time we celebrate the supper, we experience once again that our salvation is already secured. It is a certain and sure thing. We are comforted every time that we are indeed children of God already now. And the inheritance that has been promised to the children of God It already belongs to us, and it waits for us in heaven. Still, there are further comforts to be gained by the remembrance of Jesus' crucifixion. Even as we are taught to focus on Christ's body and blood, we remember as well that Christ himself is truly human, the true human body, true human soul. His human nature is very real. It's very important to us. He took on our frail and weak flesh, subject as it is to illness and hunger, thirst and death. His body could be nailed to the cross and his blood poured out, even as we ourselves can be harmed by the people around us. He could also experience deep sadness due to betrayal. His family and his friends denied him, at least at first, before he was raised from the dead. His own people hated and rejected him. Not to mention that the expectation of the cross pressed out of him sweat like drops of blood. Yes, he suffered, and he suffered in his body. He suffered intensely throughout his life, and as such, he can sympathize with all of us, all of us who have to suffer in our own ways. Anyone who suffers a broken or a weak body can find in Christ all that they need to endure their suffering patiently. The same is true for those who struggle with chronic or recurring illnesses, disorders, tumors, heart and lung conditions, or even mental illnesses. The bread and the wine encourage us to reflect also on the glorified body of Christ after the resurrection, to know and believe that God will likewise raise all those whom He has given to Christ. He will raise them all to life, 
as Christ himself promises in John 6, verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A regular spiritual diet that reflects and believes the core promises of the gospel and hopes for the resurrection will be refreshed at the Lord's Supper by its memorial aspect. And this will happen until the very end. So we come to the final point, that assurance of sharing in Christ. Now, if you look back at Lord's Day 29, question and answer 79, in the second half of the answer it says, but even more important. He was referring before to the memorial aspect, but now it starts to place its emphasis on something even more important than the memorial aspect. This is where the catechism places the, the significance of the teaching regarding why the bread and the wine are called Christ's body and blood. The memorial aspect of the Lord's Supper is significant, but more than that now is the assurance that is provided through the sacraments. That is because the sacrament is not only a sign, but it is also a seal. It is a guarantee of a promise. Now, God's promises are enough in themselves, or God's character is enough in, in itself, for God is faithful, and He never goes back on His word or breaks a promise that He has made. It never happens. He never forgets, nor is He tardy in fulfilling the promise, but He does exactly what He said He was going to do, exactly when He meant to do it. Still, because we are weak and insensitive creatures, since we are so prone to doubts and unbelief, our confidence is so easily shaken, isn't it? Because of that, God has granted to us this seal of His promise, the promise of a promise, you could say. Certainty is important to us, isn't it? We want to be sure. We want that guarantee. God's people have repeatedly asked for signs from God to guarantee His Word. It's quite normal. Look no further than reading John 6, verse 30. The people ask Jesus to give a sign that they may see and believe. Then what sign do you do, they say, that we may see and believe you? What sign? And there are many more examples. Our senses are important to us, and God has graciously granted to us a seal of His promise that appeals to our sight, our touch, our taste, and our smell to go along with what we hear through the preaching of the Word of God. So all five of our senses are engaged in the Lord's Supper sacrament so that we do not have to doubt our salvation. So just as the water of baptism washes away dirt, so too do bread and wine give us food to drink. And as certain as all that is, nobody doubts that, we are just as certain that we do share in Christ's true body and blood. Nobody doubts that bread is good for food. Nobody doubts that wine is good to drink. Neither should those who believe in Jesus doubt that they truly share in His body and blood, that they have union with their Lord and Savior by the work of the Spirit. Now, Belgian Confession, Article 35, he can tell us more about what happens at the Lord's Supper in regard to union with Christ. It says there, when we come to the table of the Lord, we come to a spiritual banquet, an abundant meal. You could say, at this table, Christ promises to communicate himself to us by faith. That is, just as the bread is distributed to each communicant member here, and just as the wine is given to each one, 
so also Christ is certainly distributed himself. He's communicated himself to each one of those who puts their faith in him. Christ makes us then, each of us, partakers of himself, and as such he grants to us all the benefits that he has merited by his righteousness and his sacrifice, by his righteous life and his sacrificial death. The Belgic Confession says that we enjoy both him and the merit of his suffering and death. And the Catechism says much the same. All his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for all our sins as though we ourselves had done it. What a guarantee that is. What a promise God has given that you and I might be able to claim by faith that the very righteousness satisfaction and obedience of Christ the Son of God might become mine. That's what Scripture tells us about. That's what the Lord's Supper tells us about. That it might that all of that, the, the righteousness and obedience of Christ might become a part of me as certainly as the food I eat becomes part of my body. That's a spiritual reality. That really happens at the Lord's Supper. These aren't just mere words. These aren't platitudes that are being given to you. This is the truth. This assurance is really given at the Lord's Supper. As we partake of the elements of bread and wine, we get a certified promise that Christ's own true body and blood become ours by faith. That's imputation, a common enough word in theological circles, but mentioned a few times in the Catechism. So we do well to understand what that means Imputation means that God no longer regards us according to our sins. He no longer credits our own sins against us, but he grants to us instead the righteousness of his own Son. God credits to us what Christ has done for us, as though we ourselves had done it. Some people call it the great exchange, and it is a great exchange, isn't it? Perhaps hard to understand, hard to accept as well. We're the sort of people that like to take responsibility for our own actions. It's hard for us to accept that, that somebody else would have to take responsibility for our actions for us and so save us. We want to take part of the credit. right? We want to take part of the credit for being saved. But Jesus Christ gets all the glory and all the credit for saving us from our sins because all of our sins were placed on his shoulders on the cross and they were crucified with him there. We didn't earn any part of our salvation. It's hard to accept that God would look on us as we know, would look on us not as we know ourselves to be, as deserving of judgment, but that he would see the work of his own son in us and so bring us into eternal life. But that's where the meaning of the bread and the wine really hits home. Christ assures us by the bread and the wine that we share in him and all his benefits. At the sacrament, the Spirit works in us to unite us to Jesus the Christ, the perfect and righteous man. Son of God. That is a great and wonderful comfort to us and to all believers around the world. For we can be certain that whatever is joined to Christ will go where he goes. Whoever has been drawn to Christ by the Father and united to him by the work of the Spirit, as John 6, verse 63 to 65 says, they cannot be separated from him. They cannot be taken away from him. He will not lose any one of those whom the Father has given to him. So it is beyond any doubt, it is beyond any doubt then, 
that whoever is joined to Christ already now in this life by faith will go to be with him in heaven. Wherever Christ goes, there go those who partake of the body and blood of their Lord. It cannot be any other way. So the next time we partake of the Lord's Supper, wherever that might be, remember these three, three things when you see the broken bread and the poured out wine. That Christ is really present at the Lord's Supper. That the bread and the wine teach us to remember Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection, its necessity and its consequences. And finally, that Christ's righteousness and obedience are granted to us by God as though we had done these things ourselves. Amen. Let's now rise if we're able and sing hymn 40, the stanzas 3, 4, and 5. <clears throat> 